Matt Bergman, and you're listening to the Punk Rock Libertarians podcast, episode 270. I'm here tonight with Jared Schneiderman. Hey, guys. Kyle Wagner. Hey, how's it going? Philip Dassing. What's going on? And Scott Horton. Scott is the editorial director of antiwar.com and the founder and director of the Libertarian Institute. Scott is is pretty much the number one, I guess, uh, libertarian, I guess, uh, expert on foreign policy. He's like he's the guy to talk to if you really want an, an honest take on foreign policy. If if you'd ask me, um, it, 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 not not only an honest take, but like the most knowledgeable. The guy's like an encyclopedia on foreign policy. Um, yeah, Scott, thanks for being here tonight. Well, thanks for having me. I disagree with you though. Um, Dan McAdams and Doug Bondo, and uh, there are a lot of other great uh, libertarian foreign policy guys who are at least as good as me or better, who I aspire yep. to be more like. So You're up there with that. them, man. Don't, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, Ted Carpenter, man. Those guys yeah. are awesome. You know, something exactly. interesting Something interesting that I heard was uh, you actually have a background in uh, punk rock and hardcore. Uh, well, no, not really. I mean, all of my friends are musicians, you know, from I'm a skater. And so, you know, all my friends are, are punk rock singers and stuff. Um, but uh, guitar players. But um, no, nah, I'm not. I I, uh, I guess my closest association with that really is other than just my friends was I was uh, a host on Chaos Radio in Austin, Texas, which is a pirate punk rock station. It's almost all punk rock and metal on there and then i was the politics guy so i haven't seen those guys in a while but you know i have a you know good friends from that time and so there's a lot of lone star beer and a lot of good times around you know back then but um and i drove a cab and i listened to a hell of a lot of chaos radio then and you know i like punk rock music but i don't play it i'm not like i never was really part of that scene very much oh okay okay um you know Another thing that I wanted to ask was, hold on one second. Actually, I want to throw this over to Phil, and I'll take it back. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just, uh, I know that you play like, a lot of, like, punk songs and stuff uh, for your intros and for your show. I just, like, what with some of your, like, bands that kind of, like, you grew up listening to that you're into? Yeah. Is there anything uh, in particular? Well, see, like, junior high years, we mostly listened to Metallica. That was, like, eighty. 86 87 88 like right around then we listened to a lot of metal and um and then i really always liked beastie boys they came out in like 86 i guess was their first one yeah and so i was mostly like that's my number one band of all time is the beasties and then also public enemy i listened to a lot of public enemy and you know in skateboarding there's you know a big uh musical influence in all of that and so you know there would be I think that's probably how I first heard of Public Enemy was from Nottis Coppus wore their shirt in Streets of Fire back in boy, the '88, I guess '87 or '88, some. Uh, yeah, no, probably '87. And then, um, and then, yeah, as far as punk rock, um, you know, all, basically all the skate rock bands, so Black Flag and Agent Orange and Bad Brains, oh, like your shirt, and <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Descendants, basically. Oh, oh, yeah. uh, the soundtracks of the skate videos, you know, those same yeah. groups. I yeah, listen to a lot of Poison Idea. That's if you ever read my book, the Afghanistan book, Fool's Aaron, 
that you should listen yeah. to Poison Idea while you read it because that's how I wrote it. That's awesome. Hey, uh, Scott, do you do you still skateboard? Well, kind of. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm trying not to get the COVID right now, but yeah, actually, um, here in Austin, they um, we have a vert ramp that's only 16 feet wide, and then they just widened it 12 feet wider, so now it's 24 and has a brand new layer of skate light and gator skins, whatever outdoor masonite stuff on it, and then the plague hit captain trips here so nobody can go ride i don't know if they're skating it or not maybe they are but uh i'm not but i can't wait to because it's only 10 foot it's big enough to do airs out of but it's not one of these 13 14 foot bohemoths that like i can't do a rock and roll on a 13 foot actually i guess i could like i could do a rock and roll on the extension on an 11 foot so i guess i can but Skating a 13-foot is scary as hell. The modern-day vert ramps are crazy. But uh, on a 10-foot, I'm a lot more comfortable. So I was really looking forward to this spring and summer, and I'm hoping that this germ will go away so I can get back to it. And I'm 43, so I don't have too many years left where I really can get out there and do a Smith grind and stuff. So I'm going to try to take advantage of the time left uh, while I have it. Yeah, actually, I just got back into skating like six months ago, and I'm 39. And I hadn't yeah, skated in like cool. 20 years. Yeah, well, but you don't ever lose it, right? Uh, I don't know. I, when I first got back on, it was like, whoa, it was all crazy and shit. I don't know. I was like really stoned too, so that, I mean, but I don't know. <laughs> it was like, you know, when I first got back on the skateboard, it, it was just really nuts. And then I did. Well, so back then, street. were you a street skater? Or yeah, exactly. More yeah, of street. a mini ramp guy? Or? Streets. Streets yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, I skate a lot of street, but I gave up when I, I mean, I never quit. I skated. I've skated all along, um, but I gave up trying to ollie downstairs when I was like 22 or something. I just thought, you know what? Like these guys are way better than me. I'm not doing a 360 flip down eight stairs. Like I mean, there are guys in my town who are just insane. And so I just thought, you know what? I work real good on like a six foot mini ramp. <laughs> that's that's kind of my thing, you know? Well, actually, like just recently, I got into bowl skating. As a kid, I only rode on the streets, but in uh, Baltimore, there's the the it's called the Lansdowne Bowl. It's been around since like 1978, so it, it's like really old. And I'd always heard of it when I was a kid, but I never went there. And recently, I started the bowl skating, and that's like a whole other different game of balance, you know. It's like yeah. you're just like surfing around. It's that's really been uh, I, the most fun that I've had since I was since I've been getting back into it. But I'm not I doing mean, anything too crazy. Truly, I mean, that's real vert skating is pools. I mean, that's where vert skating was invented, is, was in swimming pools. And, you know, riding back and forth on a little Masonite mini ramp is one thing. There's a lot of little, you know, tricks that you can do. But to me, the real essence of skateboarding is carving around in a pool or a bowl and, you know, figuring out how to put your different tricks in different places to keep going. But it's supposed to be more about riding the thing you're riding than just doing a pivot to fakie. Although I'm guilty of just doing a pivot to fake. Like I was, I'm, I'm, I'm the exact opposite of what I'm talking about in real life. But, uh, you know, cause I am just kind of mini ramp champ. But when I do have a chance to skate pools and stuff, I mean, that's what skateboarding is truly about. Dude, is riding vert and even like makeshift pools, you know, the, the skate park bowls, even with metal coping still is, you know, but yeah, that's what skateboarding is really about. If you ask me, man, it's carving and, you know, 
can't lift your front wheels. You got to make it through the corner all the way through and just carve it. But anyway. So now I, I've got a question that, that I've been kind of like dying to ask you for a long time. So like the way foreign policy has went since Donald Trump uh, came into office, right? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you suppose we would be better or worse off right now had Hillary Clinton won? Just curious what, what your Oh, well, I think we'd all be dead by now. <laughs> yeah, it, it was I sounding mean, like she wanted to go to war with Russia. Look, that was her policy, yeah. was that she was going to shoot down MiGs uh, in order to protect al-Qaeda on the ground in the Idlib province. As insane as that sounds, I know it makes me sound like I'm the crazy one, but that was the policy. She said it in the debates. You know, we want a no-fly zone. And Trump's like, she wants a no-fly zone over Syria. Who here wants a no-fly zone over Syria? And everybody's like, no. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff testified. That would mean shooting down Russian MiGs and going to war with Moscow. That's absolutely crazy. And, you know, she's exactly the wrong kind of smart. You know, she's front of the class, A-plus you know, book smart, but she's got no insight, no wisdom whatsoever. And she's very much a slave to conventional wisdom and thinking. And like, this is what we all think, right, guys? Kind of ways of going about stuff. She's a real disaster. And if she was president, then yeah, I mean, I think America's relationship with Russia right now would be far worse, which by the way, that's no apology for Trump because Trump has been horrible on Russia in part to prove yep. what a Russian agent he ain't, which he never was. That whole thing, of course, was a hoax. But yeah. um, but he has, you know, escalated American support for uh, for Poland, put troops in the Baltics, has escalated uh, Navy presence and, and training and, and whatever in the Black and Baltic seas, has um, expanded let uh, Macedonia and Montenegro into NATO and... Uh, has sent weapons to the Nazi-infested Ukrainian military that Obama used those Nazis to overthrow the government of Ukraine in 2014. But then luckily he was afraid to actually give them weapons to make their war worse, um, whereas Trump has gone ahead and armed them. And so, um, yeah, he's he's really bad. But then again, he's not directly trying to pick a fight <laughs> where as Hillary Clinton would be. I mean, Hillary Clinton was sworn yeah. as because this was the consensus. She was sworn America must defend Al Qaeda in Syria. They call themselves Hyatt Tahrir al Sham. They used to be called Jabhat al Nusra, but all they are is they're the Syrian faction of Al Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq war two is all they ever were. It's the same guy. Um, Abu Muhammad al Jolani who's sworn blood oath loyal to Ayman al Zawahiri. And that's the group that America and Turkey and Saudi and Israel are supporting there and supporting their allies and giving them billions of dollars and all kinds of guns. And Trump, to his credit, this is the best thing he's done in his presidency was in the spring of um, well, it may have been early summer, June 2017. He called off all CIA support, canceled all CIA support for that group and and backed down on that. But um Anyway, sorry, that's the long answer to your question, but I do think that there's a very reasonable chance that we'd have had hydrogen atoms fusing together above our heads, and then that would have been the last thing we knew. It, one thing that I would give to his credit, or you know, take it for whatever, but um, when like Iran supposedly shot down our drone that was supposedly not on 
across their border, but it was kind of close to it, you know. Mm-hmm. I, right then, I, I thought, uh oh, he's definitely going to go to war. Any president ever that I've seen in my entire lifetime would have went to war here, and he did not. That's that shocking. Yeah. Um, well, and I think he probably wondered whether the Navy set him up there and flew this hog. I mean, there was immediately a dispute about where it was in the airspace, and I think he was a little bit suspicious of that. And then the way the story went, I don't think there's really much doubt about this narrative at the time. I watched it play out at the time, and then it seemed to be confirmed that um, the uh, the New York Times, I'm pretty sure it was the New York Times first, had a report out that said they're preparing to go to war within the hour. Oh, no, I guess I had heard this, too. Someone had called and told me that this was going to happen. And then there was a newspaper report that said that it was going to happen. And then right then when the newspaper hit online was the Tucker Carlson show. And he interviewed Colonel Douglas McGregor. And Carlson is like, hey, isn't it the case, Colonel, that our enemies are the Sunni terrorists, the bin Ladenites that knocked our towers down, not Iran and their friends. Isn't that right, Colonel? And and uh, McGregor says, that's right, Tucker. And he goes, is there any reason why we got to fight Iran right now? And he's like, not over a drone. No, we sure don't. You know, and then that was the narrative that, you know, uh, they called it off. The next thing you know, the New York Times has a new story update. They called the thing off. They're not doing it. And then they didn't. It didn't happen. And the way it was reported was that they the planes had already taken off and he called them back. I don't know if that was really right or what um, on that detail. But apparently he watched the Tucker Carlson show and Tucker Carlson was like, look, you know, speaking as a loyal Trumpist, Carlson told him, you do not have to do this. And, you know, that was what he needed to hear was somebody tell him that there's a break in this consensus. And. You know, he's been horrible on Iran and well, because he's horrible on Israel is why he's horrible on Iran, because uh, that's what they want. And um, but then again, like he's looking at history. He knows that when he was younger, this is how Lyndon Johnson destroyed his presidency was the war in Vietnam. This was what this is what um, what McGregor said on the show. He said, Tucker Carlson, the war in Vietnam destroyed LBJ. The war in Iraq destroyed George W. Bush, and a war in Iran will destroy Donald Trump. That's why he's got to not do this. And that was the message that that McGregor said on the Tucker show. And Trump heard that and was like, yeah, you know what? He knows that that's true. Why do we all hate? Why is Donald Trump the president? Because he ran against Jeb on the theory that Jeb was George Bush's brother. And don't tell me you're going to elect George Bush's brother after what he did. And that's, you know, that's the legacy. There's no escaping it. The American people hate that and and resent that and wish that whole thing had never happened. And so um, a war with Iran would be even worse than that. And and everybody knows it. I mean, just even Donald Trump can look at a map and tell that Iran is a much bigger country than Iraq. And Iraq had been at war since 1980, basically had been at war with Iran and then bombed by the U.S., from 1991 all the way through the invasion of 2003, they had no fight to put up. But Iran has, you know, the last time they were at war was in 1989 when uh, the Iraqi invasion was finally thwarted and ended. And they so, um, three times the population. Yeah. So, yeah. So my, my question is, so why I, you hear this narrative 
narrative all the time of saying that Iran is the greatest state sponsor of terrorism. Where what I understand it's complete bullshit, but where what are they using to say that? Like the State Department, like what like what gives yeah. them that ammunition? Like, is there anything? Because I have not heard one single thing. Yeah, I mean that's you're right that it's just a slogan. They never try to really offer details. If you press them, they would say, "Well, they support Hamas and Hezbollah." But the thing is, they really don't support Hamas ever since Hamas took the revolution side in Syria while Iran was backing the government there. They cut them off then. And even then, Hamas is not an anti-American terrorist group or uh, a terrorist group of global reach, as George W. Bush would have said, in the first place. They're a local resistance group that's almost entirely confined to the Gaza Strip. Uh, They have a small presence in the West Bank. And they're an elected political party and a government. They are the – they're not really a government. They're the – trustees in an Israeli prison, but they're elected and they run the such as they are the local security forces in the Gaza Strip. And it's like Sinn Féin and the IRA, where Sinn Féin is the political party and IRA is the armed faction. Well, Hamas is a political party and they have the Qassam brigades or their actual fighters, but they're not all fighters. And essentially they're a political party. And the same thing with and, and by the way, Israel had helped to create Hamas in the first place and had made sure to hold back all of their competition for power and allow them to rise to power in order to have a right wing religious alternative to the PLO, who were like, you know, secular and communist and were not always communist, but very much like secular leftists, certainly in comparison. And so this was a divide and conquer strategy. And then they fully implemented it with the failed coup of 2007 when Hamas got the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian, you know, the Fatah that was Yasser Arafat's old group got the West Bank. And so the Palestinians are completely divided and therefore completely conquered, which they already were anyway. But so Israel had created Hamas in the first place. And then now they want to very much had helped it to come to existence. I'll put it that way. Um, and then now they want to yeah. cry about it because they fight back at all. And they have in the past, they have done terrorist attacks against civilians, but that's been a very long time, you know, uh, since the second intifada was in, you know, 2003. So, or I mean, pardon me, in 2002. So, um, you know, that was the last time I, I think that they did any suicide attacks or anything like that. And again, that's just inside Israel, a local resistance group that conquered Palestinians under Israeli military occupation there. That doesn't make them an international terrorist group at all. And then Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, Iran does support them to a great degree, but they're not really a terrorist group either. In fact, they are a major coalition partner in the government of Lebanon that the USA supports. And the president, Michael Aoun, is from the Christian party, and he has an alliance with Hezbollah is how he's the president. That's how he won is because of his alliance with Hezbollah that represents – I guess they're the only major um, political faction that represents the Shiite uh, Arabs of the South. And so, again, they have their armed group. But, you know, and Hezbollah did do suicide attacks and terrorism against inside Israel and against Israeli forces while Israel was occupying southern Lebanon. But the last suicide attack by Hezbollah was in 1999. 
And that was because they were negotiating the exit and the Israelis left in the year 2000. And the only time they fought Hezbollah since then was in 2006 when there was a tit for tat at the border and Hezbollah kidnapped a couple or captured a couple of Israeli soldiers. And the Israelis took it as an excuse to go to war, a war which they quickly lost in a month and were forced to withdraw. That was in the summer of 06. But other than that, it's been peace at the border between Hezbollah and Israel, other than the lowest level little skirmishes that never went anywhere. And no terrorism from them against civilian targets whatsoever. And so then other than that, they'll claim that Hezbollah attacked a Jewish community center in Argentina in 1994, but that was a lie. It was local Nazi cops that did that. And they just blamed it on Hezbollah in order to pin it on Iran for anti-Iranian politics. And then there are a couple more. There was like one in Bangkok um, where it was some diplomat that they were trying to uh, attack supposedly that was Hezbollah, but they never proved it was Hezbollah. And then the other big, the biggest one, is a completely bogus supposed plot to kill the Saudi ambassador to the United States by bombing a Georgetown uh, restaurant in Georgetown outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And first of all, the guy that was supposedly the target wasn't even a prince. He was just some schmuck, like civil servant type who wasn't even anyone important inside the Saudi government to assassinate in the first place. It'd be like assassinating the deputy secretary of nothing over here, you know? Um, and then the guy that supposedly was going to do it was the bumbling used car salesman from Corpus Christi who couldn't find his keys. And, you know, the whole thing, it turned out um, that the the most likely explanation for what had happened was that there was a conspiracy to funnel, to, to traffic some drugs and that, the Americans overhearing the conversations decided to just spin it into a plot to kill somebody when the whole thing was bogus. And at the time, and this never happens, but at the time there were six former CIA officers who went on the record immediately saying this story is complete nonsense and totally bogus. That's Phil Giraldi, Ray McGovern, Ray Close, Flint Leverett, and Robert Baer, who you know from CNN, the Russiagate truther, who once blamed Iran for September 11th, who's a total scumbag. Um, and even Bob Baer got that one right and said that, um, you know, that wasn't true. And then I always forget who was the sixth one. But I know there were six of them. But there's five of the six uh, CIA agents who debunked that story that day or, you know, that week, within the first week after that story happened. So... Just like you say, it's a hollow, completely empty slogan, right? They just say it over and over again, and then you're just supposed to believe it. But meanwhile, everybody knows that it's the Saudis who bankroll all the actual bin Ladenite groups around the world. And most of the time, they're doing it in cooperation with the United States of America. It's Washington, D.C. and Riyadh. They are the biggest state sponsors of terrorism in the world, and including the American people's enemies, the bin Ladenites. So do you sure. do you do you see the prospects under a Biden potential Biden presidency being equivalent to that of a Hillary presidency, or do you think somehow different? How do you compare it to Trump? That's a good question. I think he's. Um, I think Biden is marginally less worse than Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I mean, she's a very special kind of horrible. You know, um, <laughs> she, 
watch. But, you know, Biden really, he was one of the ringleaders for getting us into Iraq war, too. I mean, that war was his fault almost as much as his George W. Bush's fault mm. um, to get us into that thing. And he did everything he could. He was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate and helped. he really helped to, you know, John Kerry and Hillary Clinton and, and all the most prominent Democrats in the Senate went along with the thing. But he was the one who corralled them and herded them and pressured them and. He was the ringleader of that. Any one of them could have stopped. Any one of those brand name Democrat senators I just named could have stopped the war single handedly if they had put their foot down and said, hell no, especially Hillary Clinton, who was married to the previous president, who could have said, hey, I'm sorry, I've got the clearance on the Armed Forces Committee and I'm the spouse of the previous president. And I know this stuff is not true, is not true. And she could have stopped it right there. And and John Kerry had the prominence. He probably could have. But Joe Biden was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He absolutely could have stopped it. And instead, he did everything he could to shepherd it through. He held some bogus hearings where they got like three or four experts who, you know, supposed experts who were all hawks. And none of the dissenters were allowed to testify. You know, uh, Justin Raimondo at Antiwar.com at the time, I remember reading the article at the time in the summer of 02 his article was called the fix is in and it was about joe biden being the leader of that foreign relations committee set of bogus hearings and letting the hawks come in and blab all their lies and um uh you know he very much was for it i do think and this is probably all just expedience for you know his political calculation but I think he did learn a lesson from that, that people were really mad about that. And he opposed the Iraq surge um, where they doubled the war and then lost it anyway. And then in the Obama years, when he was vice president, he opposed the doubling of the Afghan war, really the tripling of the Afghan war, um, and said that they should go with the minimal. He was like the uh, – the, uh, what do you call it? Like on a planet, you have three choices, the maximum, the minimum, and the just right in the middle kind of Goldilocks thing. But he was the minimal plan. Yeah. Let's give him only 20,000 troops for just hunting non-existent Al-Qaeda guys and some training and forget fighting the Taliban at all, which is pretty good for back then for the position he was in anyway. Um, and then legend has it that he opposed the war in Libya and advised Obama against doing the war in Libya although I don't know that that's true. And then I think he must have been bad on Syria. If not, he sure wasn't good enough to stop it. He did one time tell the truth about it. If you type in Biden, Harvard, Syria, you'll see he go goes on this. He does this sometimes where he starts talking and you can't shut him up. And he makes less and less sense nowadays. But at this time, he starts talking and he starts talking about how it's all of our allies who are backing the al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria and how... Um, you know, he tried to make them stop, but they just wouldn't and all this kind of deal. But he goes on and on and explains all about the truth behind that there. Um, but so, I mean, that's no brief for him. Uh, I mean, the guys should be in prison for Iraq War II. He shouldn't have had the opportunity to be good on Libya other than from his supermax cell. But, um, you know, I think he did learn the lesson that you know, the U.S. Army is not magic. It's 19-year-olds with M4s and they can't accomplish anything what they can accomplish is killing other armies that's what you know their job is but remaking other people's societies the way you want and guaranteeing the kind of outcomes you want to see it's just i think he's smart enough to see that boy 
that whole bubble was popped in the on the streets of Baghdad, if nowhere else, you know. Um, and so uh, whether that would mean that he'd be very reluctant to be, you know, that we could count on him to be any less worse in power. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, they asked him about, would you get back in the Iran deal? And he's like, geez, I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about it to say. Like, what? I mean, you it was the government that got us into the Iran deal. Dude. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and we need that thing. We need to go back into that yeah. bad. I mean, that would be if there's one reason to support Biden over Trump at all, that might be it would be that he would be likely to get back into that deal with the Iranians that really ratcheted down tensions there a lot. Yeah. And the Iranians have stayed inside the deal this whole time. Um, they have exceeded some limits, but that's actually in the deal that if America breaks our side of the deal, that they can start exceeding some of the limits. But they have not repudiated the deal and walked away from it the way the Americans have. Wow. So there's something to be salvaged there. I'm not recommending anybody vote for any of these guys, you understand. But I'm just saying the question was comparing, <laughs> relatively speaking. Sure. Yeah, but yeah. he would be absolutely horrible on Russia. I have every reason to suspect he would be hor absolutely horrible on China. Um you know, just the way all the hawks are now. Essentially, it's like this with the military. The army wants the buildup in, and the Air Force too, I guess, want the buildup in Europe against Russia. The Navy and the Marine Corps, well, they're focused on China. So you see how this is all about them and not about Russia and China. It's all about the American services and their interests and, you know, their cronies' interests. And then the Special Operations Command gets Islamic South Asia and Africa. You know, um, that's basically the way they're divvying it up. So that's completely nonpartisan. That's the Pentagon's world empire. And so which president could you vote for that's going to take that away from them? There's not one. I mean, that's essentially the deal. That's what they're here for, is to keep that whole system going as long as they can. And so, um, you know, and, and Trump He's not any more willing than Biden to get us out of any of this stuff. He he talks a good game sometimes, but we're still in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, still committing genocide in Yemen. Got troops, yeah. uh, you know, helping who knows which bad guys in Libya and Tunisia and Mali and Chad and Niger and Nigeria and on into all of Africa. I mentioned Somalia, where they've killed probably a million people in the last 13, 14 years there. Yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of uh, interesting the way you put like I know you've talked about this before uh, about the divisions of who, who supports who, but um, I know um, personally speaking of Israel, um, I, I remember growing up I had a um, you know I grew up in like a Republican household and the only criticism I ever heard of of Israel growing up was from a family member I had who works with NSA and they told me that the number one people that are always breaking in and trying to spy on us is israel mm -hmm. and i was blown away as a young kid i'm like really like what i thought they're an ally like, you know i'm like 12 13 hearing this and stuff and it really wasn't until i was at a i was at a show a hardcore show um back in D, like in dc it was a place called like alice fisher cafe and uh, in between sets uh the bands this the owner came out and like talked to the whole crowd and was like look i'm palestinian the israel is you know they're they're enslaving us they're they're killing us, and it was it was kind of blew me away. Like hearing this stuff, like I never heard of this stuff before. Like the only thing I ever heard growing up was from like, I remember like my one of my best friends' dad was like, no one's out, no one was Palestinian. These Palestinians weren't there. No one was in Palestine before Israel came, and 
And um, I know I know we have a bunch of people. We have a group punk rock libertarians, and uh, right during this whole Iran thing broke out, um, everyone kind of seemed it, somehow it got back to Israel, and people were. It was weird seeing all these libertarians who I like, interact with who were not, like, for whatever reason, were really backing Israel and said, "Well, Palestine, the Palestinians keep on fighting Israelis, and you know it's the Palestinians' fault. They're the terrorists, the bad guy." And I was hoping, yeah. like, you could shed some light and say, like, is it what 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 did Palestine ever do to Israel that yeah. would justify what's going on? Sure. Yes. Okay. So a bunch of things there. First of all, your uncle. I mean, this is the deal. If you ever talk to a former CIA officer or a former NSA officer or somebody who was like an FBI counterintelligence or something, they hate Israel. They hate yeah. Israel. They don't have any real, you know, vested interest to like Israel. They resent the hell out of Israel for exactly the reason that you just said. Nobody spies on America more than them. And jot this down for your notes. Jeff Stein, who's an American patriot and was an Army intelligence officer in Vietnam and is now he's a spy talk columnist. I guess at Newsweek or whatever, he he skips around Washington Post, Congressional Quarterly and whatever. Um, but he has reported for years and years and years that there's just no question that they are the number one allied state that spies on the U.S. And then in many years, they spy on the U.S. more than Russia or China or any you know supposed adversary does. And in fact, they got caught with those stingrays, you know, like your local cops have that they got mm -hmm. from the DEA where they have this machine that can intercept your cell phone call. They can act, it can mimic a cell phone tower and intercept your cell phone calls, but then route them and let, you know, and actually do the work, but also intercept everything. Well, they found those all around the White House. And they, this was like one tiny little story. I think maybe it was in the Post, but not the Times they or something like that. It ran once and just maybe USA Today had it for a day and that was it and that this was the Israelis got caught and they were doing everything they could to intercept Donald Trump and whoever else is on a cell phone in the White House to intercept all their calls they were literally and that in was the just White House? you know these a year devices. ago or something like that I'm sorry go ahead yeah these devices were literally in the White House uh like you know I think they were the in the neighborhood like oh. right around it like but within a block all yeah, around yeah, yeah. you know wow. hidden in the bushes and whatever you know <laughs> yeah um and then so now, um, I mean, the, the whole question of Israel-Palestine is obviously it's very complicated. But to address the way that you put it last there first here, what did Palestine ever do to Israel? Well, it was Palestine. The Israelis right. conquered and took over 78% of it. And the Palestinians live on 22%. Of, that's what's left is Palestine. If you look at a map of Israel right now, it looks like maybe the Palestinians invaded from across the river in Jordan and carved out this big piece of Israel, the West Bank. But no, that's what's left, that the Israelis have not finished conquering, where they came in after, I mean, they started coming in, the Zionist movement was before World War II, but after World War II, many Jewish exiles from Britain and survivors of the Holocaust, I mean, from Europe and survivors of the Holocaust came to um to Palestine, and then they declared independence and created their own state in 1948. And they made, from the very beginning, they made a secret deal with the king of Jordan that he would take over the West Bank to preclude the Palestinians from getting their own state. And they stabbed them in the back from the very beginning. Instead of, we can't have one state where everybody has equal rights. It has to be a Jewish state, but 
according to the, they always invoked the United Nations resolution that recommended a partition and that there be a state of, of Israel for the Jews. But the other part of that plan was that the Palestinians would have their state, but they never got theirs. They remain under occupation. And then the, the Jordanians lost it to the Israelis in 1967. And the Israelis took over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967. And so since then, the Palestinians have lived, well, think of it like this, martial law, which would mean if your governor turned his, turned your state over to the U.S. Army to administer, where the essentially the law is do as you're told or be shot. That's martial law. Well, the Palestinians live under a whole other level of tyranny beyond that. They live under foreign military occupation law, which is that much more lawless than martial law under your own military dictatorship, if that makes sense. They essentially have no rights whatsoever. And it's not that they're slaves, right? When he, it, your paraphrase of the guy saying they're enslaving us. Well, not really, because they treat the Palestinians as though they have no rights whatsoever that the Israelis are bound to respect. But... They don't want them there. They don't want them there. They'll have the Middle Eastern Jews scrub the toilets and the floors and do all the medial work. They want the Palestinians to die or get the hell out. And they want to force march them into the Sinai Desert or into the Jordan River or, you know, across into Jordan. And you'll hear all the time Zionists say, why can't they just move to another Middle Eastern country? Uh, because that's theirs. And I'll tell you about this, man, because, you know, your your question is is actually perfect in the sense that it is completely representative of the American understanding of Israel-Palestine. And that is essentially a state of confusion. Who is who and what is the deal over there anyway? And, exactly. And and I'm, I was the exact same way. And when I started learning all about foreign policy stuff, this is the thing I kind of put off until last because it seems like it's so complicated and I'm really not on any side. I don't care. So I don't know. And then this was the thing. And I remember telling my history teacher in high school that, you know, I don't really want to know or care or anything about that because, frankly, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of this ancient mythology stuff anyway. And you have these people saying, oh, God gave us this land. No, God gave us this land. No, God gave us this land. And so it's completely intractable religious conflict. And both sides lack having reason on their side. They're all invoking the supernatural mythology to justify property rights. And so the whole thing is bankrupt all the way around. There's no side to take. But see, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. And that's what she tried to explain to me then that I didn't understand. But the Palestinians, they have natural property rights to that land. It's their land. They are the sons and grandsons and great grandsons and great great grandsons going back for 3,000 years. They are the people of Palestine. The Roman exile, even if it had happened, that was 2,000 years ago. The people who have homesteaded that property since then own it, regardless of what happened back then. But in fact, the Roman exile never even happened. That is total mythology. They had no ability to transport people out of Palestine in that way, uh, like in the stories. And that's why there's no real history of it happening at all. It's just a myth. And But it's regardless, 
That land was under John Locke and Western property rights theory. You take over land, you homestead it, you mix your labor with it, you plant crops and you harvest them. That's your land. And that was their land. They have natural property rights. It's the Israeli Jews or the really the Jews from around the Middle East and from uh, the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. They're the ones who have to invoke a supernatural right. They're the ones who have to invoke ancient mythology because under just the regular rule of property rights and law, they would have no right whatsoever to invade this land and say, yeah, but my great grandfather to the 10th power removed 2000 years ago owned some land around here somewhere so now i have the right to kick you off of this land and take it over no one would buy that but and so they have to dress it all up as this is biblical and that this land still quote unquote belongs to them even though they're the descendants the ashkenazi jews who founded israel they're the descendants of converts to judaism anyway this whole thing is just extrapolated nonsense on top of extrapolated nonsense. It would be like if the Italians of New York and New Jersey invaded Sicily, killed a bunch of people and raped them and lined them up and shot them against the wall and seized all their property and said, yeah, but our ancestors came from Sicily. So we have every right to do this, to go yeah. and invade and kill and whoever. That would mean that the Germans had the right to invade Eastern Europe because that was where the ancient Teutons came from. And so if the Germans are good Germanic, Teutonic, whatever, then I guess that means they had the right to conquer all of Eastern Poland and into the Baltics or wherever the hell the Teutons came from over there, right? And, and believe me. It would be the Israelis would be the first ones to tell you that. No, the Germans do not have the right to invade whatever ancient homeland they came from. But we do. Right. And, you know, the law since World War Two, as handed down by the United States of America. And actually, I'm against the United Nations and, and this whole concept of America being the guarantor of security. But the law in the world since World War Two is you may not do this. You cannot conquer people, invade their country, change their borders, occupy them, move civilians there to colonize their land. Oh, oops, except in this one case. And then in 1967, right, 20 years later, after the creation of Israel, then Israel comes and occupies all of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And the first thing they do is they start moving civilian colonists into the West Bank. To, so it's not just under military occupation, but they have what they call settlements, which are these racial colonies. Um, and this would be akin to if George W. Bush had started sending white Americans from Texas and Alabama to go and move to Baghdad and to bring their families to take these people's property and take over Baghdad as a white American city. Right. And say that, no, it belongs to us by the divine right of George Bush was is the cousin of the Queen of England who got the magic from the <laughs> Temple of Solomon during the Crusades or something. And so that's why we have the right to do this. You see how that's just made up mythological bullshit. It's just a fake excuse to kill people and steal property from them. And that's all it is. It's as simple as that. And I don't know if you guys can see in the background there this book, Coming to Palestine. It's by my guy, Sheldon yeah. Richmond. Your, yeah, uh, your, video, your video is blurred it's, in the back. It's called Coming to <laughs> Palestine. Blurred out a little bit. Oh, here. You see? There you go. Yeah. So Sheldon is, he's the co-founder of the Libertarian Institute with me. 
And he's, and he's raised great. a Zionist Jew in America. And this is the story of how he learned the real story of what happened there. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with Sheldon Richmond, but he's as libertarian. Yeah, I'm pretty as rich. Yeah. Yeah. He's been one of our greatest intellectual leaders in our movement for, you know, 30 years or more and uh, probably, you know, 40 years. And um, and so this book just tells the story. This is everything you need to know about who's zooming who around here. And then and it's all very cut and dry. The only reason it's confusing is because they lie to you all damn day. As simple as that. Yeah, um, yeah Scott, man. Scott, I've got a question uh, for you from in our group. So Ted Langer asks, uh, what do you know about a supposed uh, plan of Trump's to send troops into Mexico to help them fight the drug war? Well, you know, they had talked about that, but I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think the Mexicans want any part of that. They would have to agree to that. And I think, you know, if the army knows what they're doing, they don't want any part of that either. Um, you know, I could recommend an article by Fred Reed, uh, crank the old kind of right-wing libertarian, writes sometimes for LewRockwell.com. And he's an expat living down there in Mexico. And he wrote an article about that. Oh, it's going to send the army to fight the drug war down here, huh? And then it's a picture of the Sierra Madres, these mountains in, you know, I guess south of Arizona land around there. And, man, these this is some tough territory. This is like fighting in Torobora or worse. You know, this right, is yeah. land of drug runners. You can't. This is their land. You can't oust them out of there. You can't hunt them down there. Those are their mountains. And it'd be like the Mexican army trying to invade Colorado to take it from the civilians of Colorado. Good luck with that. We already have the high ground and we're armed to the teeth and ruthless as hell. Forget it. And so he's saying, you want to lose an army? Go ahead and send them into Mexico, man. They might never come back again. You might not find out whatever happened to them. (laughs) Just forget it. Just fall the whole thing off. And in fact, you know, why is the problem in Mexico so bad? It's because they militarized it. You know, I mean, it used to be that, you know, Mexico wasn't even that big in the drug game because all the cocaine was coming from Peru and and Colombia down there, you know, south of Mexico. And then they just fly it up. But then the Americans cracked down on all the planes. So then. They had to go overland. So, you know, they end up going up through Mexico and corrupting huge parts of Mexico's economy and society and and government in order to be able to get away with it all. And, of course, there's so much money at stake that they can do that. So they end up completely corrupting the police and everything. And so then what George W. Bush and Vincente Fox, their best idea was we'll call out the army and we'll just send the U.S. I mean, the Mexican army after them. Well, you're familiar with the Zetas, who are the most dangerous of the drug gangs down there, the cartels in Mexico. Well, they started out as an elite anti-drug task force that was going after the worst drug dealers. And then they were like, man, we're the baddest hombres in East Mexico right now. Why don't we just take this thing over for ourselves? And so they did. And they became the very worst cartel in Mexico. And then that was when the CIA started backing the Sinaloa cartel in order to fight against them. And you guys are familiar with the gun walking scandal mm-hmm. of the Obama years. Where yeah. The, the years. government was making like had, you know, they were completely pressuring and leaning on this Arizona gun dealer, uh, a legal gun shop 
to allow these Mexican gangsters to come in and walk out with all these high powered weapons. Hmm. And the idea was, oh, we're going to follow the guns to where they go and that'll lead us to the big cheese or whatever. Well, the big cheese is working for the CIA in the first place, you dumb dumbs. And so that's who you're going after. And then but meanwhile, then those very same guns and they traced it back. Some of those very same guns were used to kill American DEA guys and plus innocent civilians and all kinds of people in Mexico mm. with those very same firearms. And this actually broke into a scandal there for a bit. But this whole thing had just been completely exacerbated by the United States. You know, and for all the complaints of American right wingers against immigration from Mexico, well, hey, maybe if you stop raising their country to the ground for them in the name of saving them and helping them, maybe they would stay home. But there's not a bigger pro-immigration program in the world than America in George W. Bush insisting on the Mexican government militarizing the war on drugs, which, of course, for even a Bush, Neil Bush, say, for example, the bank swindler, ask him. He could explain to you that as long as there's a demand for cocaine among who uh, American Republicans are the ones snorting all that stuff up their nose. Who else can even afford it other than American Republicans are the ones doing it in the first place. And as long as they demand it, there's going to be a supply. And the more you crack down, the more you raise the price, the more you incentivize worse gangsters to get into the business. Mm -hmm. Anyone with an elementary education in capitalist economics can explain to you why prohibition created Al Capone. Okay, it's no different. It's the exact same thing. And maybe Jeb and George Jr. can't understand that, but their brother Neil could. And I'm sure he's terrible on the drug war, but I'm just saying <laughs> if he knows how to embezzle from a bank, he must know the first thing about money and how that sure. works. Sure. And anyway, Joe Biden's son. <laughs> but I, I guess I didn't really answer the question. Is Trump going to do it? Lord, I hope not. And I don't think so, because I think just like with Iran, the Marines and the Army have got to be telling him we don't want to. Well, yeah, like, like plus, absolutely plus now. nuts for us to do, you know. In fact, I got one more story along those lines. Andrew Basevich, who's a retired U.S. Army colonel and whose son was yeah. killed in Iraq War II, and, and he wrote all these great books. Uh, America's War for the Greater Middle East is the best one. Um, but he's, you know, written all these great anti-war books and stuff. And during the big debate over whether to triple the Afghan war in 2009, the big counterinsurgency strategy, coin, we've got the coin Danistas, and led by David Petraeus and Stanley McChrystal, they know what to do. We're going to go in there and we're going to remake Afghan society and we're going to win the people over away from themselves and who are resisting us and all of this garbage. And so Basevich has the credentials to be allowed to be the dissenter at uh, one of these think tanks when they hold a big conference about it in D.C. in 2009. And he gets up there and he says, yeah, OK, so here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to um, there's this country where we don't speak the language and which is very poor and very corrupt and completely racked with violent drug cartels and corruption from the top to the bottom and we're, what we're going to do is we're going to send in the U.S. Army and Marines up to 100,000 men to retrain their armed forces and to um, to win the people over the hearts and minds of the civilian population over to our side. And we're going to do all this stuff. And so, come on, let's invade Mexico. Let's do it. 
And the whole crowd goes, oh, no, oh, my God, we're not invading Mexico. Are you crazy? And yet somehow this makes perfect sense to do this in Afghanistan, where what's the difference between Mexico and Afghanistan? The only difference is the American people can't witness firsthand the devastation caused by their failure in Afghanistan. Whereas if they tried the exact same stunt in Mexico, it would be apparent for all here to see just how horrible it all had gone. And so when when Basevich put that to them as the devil's advocate, their exact same plan for Afghanistan, come on, let's go to Mexico and teach them to invade good, uh, teach them to elect good men, as Woodrow Wilson said, and all this, they all scoffed and rolled their eyes and said, yeah, right, we'd never try that in a million years. They know better than that. It would be absolutely as pointless as trying the same thing in Afghanistan. And, and they knew that before they tripled the war in Afghanistan. <laughs> they went ahead and did it anyway. But on that same thinking that they're just denying. So do you think that uh, coronavirus will affect our foreign policy at all? Like maybe if like there's such chaos and a pandemic going on in the States, maybe we're not going to like be as concerned with like attacking other nations. Well, it can cut both ways. Um, you know, I, my most recent article for antiwar.com says we have to end the wars now. I mean, this should be so obvious where every single kitchen table in America right now ought to be, people ought to be asking Hey, what if we hadn't blown $17 trillion on imperialism so far in this century? That's a trillion dollars a year plus, I mean, really more than that. It's a trillion dollars a year. And then on top of that, the cost of the wars is another six and a half trillion dollars. I mean, the amount of money blown and then plus the interest on the debt and the, you know, the care and feeding of the nuclear weapons and the submarines and all of this stuff, it's... It's incalculable. I mean, it's impossible for other than the like most advanced math geniuses at your local university or whatever teaching down there for the rest of us. We can't even really fathom how much money that is. And that's the entire worth of the American economy before the crash. Right. A few weeks ago before the crash, we are talking a 20 trillion dollar economy. That's essentially how much we've blown what the entire value of all the material wealth in America is in a given year is how much we've blown. And, and just think, I mean, and never mind any kind of commie plan for the government doing it, but just think if private, uh, you know, taxpayers had had that money instead and hadn't had it inflated away from them, hadn't been, you know, forced under artificially low interest rates to speculate in the markets and lose everything when it crashes and all these kinds of things. And and just what if regular investors had had that money to put into healthcare businesses? I mean, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of people's needs being met. And, you know, and again, that's not commie talk. I mean, in fact, in the in the in the sense that they mean, I mean, I, I think you can say the exact same thing from a completely laissez faire free market uh, point of view of just private sure. that money and doing what they want. But, you know, it was Ike Eisenhower, who was the commander of United Nations forces in Europe in World War II, the five star general who then became the president of the United States for two terms. He was the one. It's not the military industrial complex speech. It's the cross of iron speech where he says, like, listen up, everybody. 
for every battleship we build, that's six schools not built. Okay, for every time that we build a nuclear rocket, that's money that's not going to keep somebody's grandma alive. Okay, these are trade-offs that we are making here. You cannot have it all, and um, you know this is right. The number one first lesson of economics is scarcity. You know, the money, all the wealth that's being transferred to this is not going to something else instead. And we ought to all, this whole society ought to be looking back at the last 20 years and they should be marching on George W. Bush's house to hang him from the highest lamppost for for all that he has ruined. And and, you know, him and him and Obama both and Trump with them, they belong in prison, these guys for life for what they've done. And and not just to the people of Iraq, but to the people of the United States of America. I mean, think about all the money you make in your life, all that they tax you, thousands and thousands of dollars a year in your federal income taxes that they take from you every year. By the end of your working life, however many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars they'll have taken from you. And yet all of that is the slightest rounding error when they pay some institutional bondholder the interest on their debt. That's it. All your money that they take from you and the value removed from your ability to care for yourself and your people and invest for your own future, that money is just pissed away by them. You're lucky if they piss it away instead of paying the salary of some torturer with that money that they take from you. But mostly they'll just piss it away on the bond that went to pay for a tire for a plane they never used. I mean, this is it's absolutely insane. The amount of wealth that they take from us and destroy. It's just like in George Orwell, where the torturer O'Brien gives Winston Smith the manual of how we do it. And he says in there, every time we build, every time we fire off a rocket into space and every time we put one of our floating fortresses out to sea, that's your excess wealth that we're blasting off into space or sinking into the ocean where you can't get to it. Money that you would otherwise spend on improving your own life. And that's our that's the goal. That's the reason why the world is constantly at war in 1984 is to keep everybody on the edge of existence and and desperate. And so that's how they do it. They you know, they bribe us off with a bubble every once in a while and then we have to suffer these major crashes and you know watch billionaires get bailed out while everybody else gets peanuts and it doesn't have to be this way at all the number one root of the whole problem is the empire yeah you know this is how bill clinton made expanding the world empire after the end of the cold war seem free was he had alan greenspan inflate a giant bubble so the American people were like, where's my peace dividend? And they were like, well, you don't yep. get peace, but here's yeah. your dividend. Right? You got paid in the 1990s. If you're living through that bubble time, it seems like peacetime. It seems like everything is okay. But in fact, they're expanding the giant world empire. And then that bubble crashed right before George Bush came into power. And then George Bush comes into power. And not only is there a recession, but then we get hit in the financial district on September 11th. And what does Alan Greenspan do? He puts a pedal to the metal, lowers interest rates to 0%. And so we can have not just a war in Afghanistan, but we can have a bonus war in Iraq, and it won't cost you a cent. In fact, the oil is going to pay for it. And not only that, here, remember this? They sent out $300 checks in the mail 
in 2004 and 2005 as though this was your dividend. This was your yeah. share of all the money we are making off of invading Iraq. When in fact, they created that money out of thin air. It's just a bribe. In fact, they were burying $6 trillion in the sand of Iraq, destroying that wealth where no one could get to it at all and, and destroying all kinds of lives and property at the same time. A net loss all around. They made it seem not only free, but like you were going to profit from it. Then the giant crash comes in 2008. Everybody's standing around staring at their shoes in the unemployment line, and they don't understand. This is your price for the cost of killing all those Iraqis. Is now your two and three years of unproductive time making no money as the economy tries to right itself again. And then how they do that? By inflating another bubble again, Q1, 2, 3, 4, QE, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and all this, and created trillions of new money. And they built up the giant bubble that the virus just popped. And so, but, you know, it's, I don't know exactly how you measure it, but it's it seems like the bubble times last about two years longer than the recessions do, something like that. And so it, people think, okay, well, at least... The businesses are up and running again and everything's fine. And, you know, people are, you know, in total bubble activities to uh, opening up cupcake shops and all this stuff. Like, <laughs> man, that is there's no way that's a sustainable business to have to build an entire business like a, a, a brick and mortar storefront where people stop in for cupcakes. Like there's just that's never going to last. That's a real, you know, um, Mark Thornton uh, from Mises has what he calls the skyscraper thesis, where whenever the tallest skyscraper in the world is being built, that's when there's a giant bubble and everything's about to crash. And he goes and he shows, and it's because where's all he that money going to go? There's all this new money, and there's not enough goods to, for it to chase. And so it ends up going to the very richest people who then get into the ultimate vanity project, mm -hmm. a recreation of their own phallus, you know, on the, in their hometown to leave behind. Right. And so happens every time, works every time. And and Mark Thornton was on my show a year ago going, oh, yeah, they're building a giant new skyscraper over there in whatever Bali or Abu Dhabi or whichever it was, the world's tallest building again. <laughs> and so you can expect yeah. this thing to pop in a year. Hmm. And here we go. So anyway, and all that, it's from the empire. And in fact, they'll even tell you, look, we can't have a gold standard. What if there was a war? Right. They just they that's exactly how they think. They don't even know they're supposed to be embarrassed to say that. Why do we need a paper money standard so that we can get into wars so they can expand the money supply and not have to raise your taxes? They tax you invisibly through inflation and through the pain you suffer when the bubble pops. Right. And so, yeah, man, it ought to be that the American people realize we don't need the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force. We don't need them. You know, Ron Paul said in 2007 when he's running for president, he told the Washington Post, he goes, man, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. That's it. That's all we need yeah. to deter and China our only conceivable enemies in for the next hundred years out. The only people who could ever really threaten us. We hold enough nukes on two submarines, one in each ocean to level their capital city, all their military bases, and whatever we would have to do, whatever we would have to be able to do to deter an attack on ourselves. Right. And then that's it. And the business of America could be business. 
The business of America doesn't have to be distorted into this global imperialism whatsoever. It just is completely, um, you know, it would be like if somehow the cancer lobby or the, 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 well, it's a bad example because it is a perfect example is, you know, the way the, um, the pharmaceutical industry just has a lock on the way that medicine is done in America and through law through in fact the whole medical industry the insurance companies the pharmaceutical companies the hospital companies all the biggest providers of healthcare the HMOs and the PPOs and all these things they run a cartel they work with the congress to write the laws to rig the game for them for the suppliers at the expense of the customers where in the free market it's the customer who's king but they're organized and so in the way that the masses are not and so the companies can essentially rig the game for themselves. It's the same thing with the military, the military departments, and plus all those contractors, all the arms manufacturers, and all the you know intelligence analysts, and all the money that's being made. A trillion dollars a year, as William Lynn said, it's the biggest honeypot in the history of the world. There's just nothing that compares to it. And so it's just... You know, for a leftist, this is just capitalism, the, the ultimate of capitalism. But to a real laissez-faire capitalist, this is what David Stockman calls the great deformation, right? This is the hijacking yeah. the entire American system by some businesses. That's not the same thing as capitalism, unless you just mean rule by capitalists, you know, a state run by capitalists. But capitalism in terms of an economic system requires the destruction of these kinds of cartels and these kinds of, you know, this kind of political influence over society, because it is, as Stockman says, a great deformation in the economy that ruins everything for everyone else. It rigs the game against everyone else. And so, you know, you can see it as made up of, of capitalist businesses, but they're all, they're, they're really not, you know, it's not privatization, it's contracting, right? It's, it's, um, it's money for private mercenary companies like Lockheed and Raytheon. Um, their profit motive, combined with the government's ability to tax and inflate and socialize all their costs on everybody else. Right. And and so it's a, the ultimate, you know, uh, dirty snowball rolling downhill. And so then, back to your good question, sorry I take so long, is, <laughs> is the virus enough to snap people out of it and realize that it doesn't have to be this way? It does not have to be this way. And you know what? Never mind Al Gore. Forget Al Gore. But just if Bush had not had Rumsfeld and Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and the neoconservatives there, but instead had just done what the American people thought he was going to do, which was rely on Colin Powell, Colin Powell. Now, he did lie us into war. He went to the U.N. and told a bunch of lies to justify Iraq War II. But that, he was being a good loyal soldier there. He had advised. Yeah, Bush I think he was used a little bit in that. Yeah. So so there's your counterfactual for the entire history of the 21st century. If Bush had just listened to Powell instead of Cheney, none of this had to happen. None of it had to be this way at all. No Iraq War II, no Libya, no Syria, no Yemen, no Somalia. They could have been in and out of Afghanistan. Even And I write in the book how they didn't have to go to war in Afghanistan at all. They could have negotiated. But even if you accept that, oh, they had to go to war in Afghanistan at least through December. Well, Osama was done escaping by the end of December. December 17th was the last time the Delta Force saw any sign of him. 
And so the war could have been over and by, and Al Qaeda was mostly destroyed at that point. And the war would have been over by the end of 2001. That was it. If they had not had this agenda to expand the war to Iraq and to do all these things, none of this had to happen. And so now should be the time that the American people realize it never had to be this way at all. Now's the perfect time to call it off. Yeah. So, like, I mean, right now, what do you think of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the Maryland coordinator for the Mises caucus and uh, we're back in Jacob Hornberger pretty hard. And, and you know what, I, I, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, some maybe in this home group right now who think, uh, uh, he's pretty boring. So like, what do you think, like a real quick pitch for having Jacob Hornberger be the nominee for the libertarian president? Well, you know, um, the recent news is that, um, uh, Judge Jim Gray from California has entered yeah. the race with Larry Sharp as his VP. And for people not familiar, uh, Jim Gray was a conservative judge from Orange County who got sick and tired of the drug war. And that was how he became a libertarian was, um, you know, coming at it from a right wing point of view against the the efficacy of locking people up over drug possession stuff. Um, and so he's in pretty tight with the leadership of the Libertarian Party and I'm not exactly sure how the bylaws work and stuff, but I was told that if they can't hold the convention in May, which I don't think they're going to be able to do at all, um, if they can't, then it goes to the LNC and the LNC decides. And then I'm not sure if yeah. I saw starting yesterday that Justin Amash is probably going to enter the race. And I think. Yeah, there's some real scuttlebutt of whether he's going to be independent you know, or as a libertarian. But, you know, yeah, definitely you're right. I mean, well, when he floated, he said he was ta- he was thinking about running for the LP nomination. There's a Washington Post piece about it. So he was explicit about that. Yeah, and I think it, if he pretty, runs, then he'll get it. And I think it's pretty impossible to run independent. Huh? I think it's like pretty impossible to run independent, right? Because then you don't have you're not going to yeah. be on the ballot in other states. Yeah, and there's no way he would have the money. The Koch brothers have abandoned yeah. him now, you know, so he, is this, he would not be able to get on the ballot. And the LP is only on the ballot in like 36 states this year anyway. Yeah, um, we kind of got fucked last time. Yeah, and then, you know, how can they petition? The laws are so strict against the third parties, and how can they go out and petition in the middle of a plague? So I think they're trying to sue in some states, but I don't know how much difference that's Yeah, here in Maryland, for sure. Well, hey yeah. Scott, we Scott, we actually went like uh, twelve minutes over, but uh, dude, you've oh, been sorry. so awesome. No, dude, no, it's you've been so amazing. That's why we went over, man. <laughs> yeah, you've been awesome. We, we this really guy appreciate. Never got to ask a question at all here. <laughs> I know. What do you got, dude? <laughs> dude, that's Kyle uh, Wagner. He's a major statist. Yeah, that's all right. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I had a thought. You mentioned the word hawks. And um, I, I think that there is a divide between hawks and doves, people that have a hawkish view and a dovish view. And for whatever reason, you know, and a lot of American people are just neutral. They don't have a, a strong opinion either way. But I do think that the hawks are firmly in control and have been in control for at least the last 20 years. And so, you know, you have great ideas, but we don't we don't have anybody on like the Council of Foreign Relations. I imagine it's all hawk, all hawks. And all the people around the president are hawks. And there just doesn't seem to be any voice of, of dovishness in the uh, around the president. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's really it's Donald Trump's fault, because the truth is he really does believe in this America first stuff. And well, 
I wouldn't even say that. He doesn't believe in all the BS mythology about America's world leadership and all of this, you know, all the kind of romantic justifications for the American empire. He looks at it as simply a money losing proposition. And why should we have troops in Japan when they can have their own troops? Why should we have troops in Germany when they can have their own and that kind of thing? So it's not like he has a real ideology against it, but he just doesn't believe in the ideology of it. But meanwhile, we have one good solid bench of anti-interventionist conservatives and libertarians who he could get, who have the credentials, you know, to be in a position on his National Security Council and in, even on his cabinet. And so the problem is he just doesn't read. He just doesn't read. If he was the kind of guy who sat around and read at all, like somehow he would come across the national interest where you have, you know, good kind of right leaning skeptics and anti-interventionists. And he could hire Basevich. He could hire Doug McGregor. He could make Rand Paul the secretary of state. He could get Doug Bandow and Ted Carpenter from Cato. He could get probably Paul Pilar from the national interest who, you know, is kind of a reformed a liar who was bad on a record too, but has done pretty good since then. Um, there's enough guys. There's a, a solid dozen guys that Trump, if he read the American conservative magazine and the national interest, he could say, okay, we can do this. We have enough guys to fill the positions to carry out this kind of policy, but he just doesn't know uh, mm -hmm. even who these guys are. And then of course too, he's got to worry about the Israelis and the Israel lobby and they will, you know, they will pull their support at a moment's notice. So you get somebody like Doug uh, McGregor or Doug Bandow um, who are, you know, uh, decent on Palestine issues, at least. And that's an absolute no go. I mean, fairness is absolutely out of the question. And, you know, Trump had even said to APAC, to their face in 2016, that I don't need your money. I don't care about you and you can do what you want. And he said, Marco Rubio, well, he'll just be Apex's perfect little puppet. Oh, no, he'll be Sheldon Adelson's perfect little puppet. No, I don't need Sheldon Adelson's money and this and that. But then somebody said to Trump, hey, the Republican Party needs this money. Not just you here. You got to have Congress. And then Sheldon Adelson ponied up $100 million in 2016 and another $100 million in 2018. And he's going to do another $100 million this year for the House and the Senate for the Republicans. And Donald Trump, Donald Trump can't turn his back on that. And Sheldon Adelson is tied right at the hip with Likud in Israel with Benjamin Netanyahu's government. And that kind of pressure Trump cannot resist. And he would lose all that support in an instant if he started appointing, you know, um, conservative, right-leaning American non-interventionists and anti-interventionists. There are enough of them up there, but the political consequences would just be too tremendous for too many people. You know, again, that military-industrial complex that includes the, the state itself and all of its contractors – all of their media hacks. And just look at the way that they all coalesced around this narrative that Donald Trump was a pro-Russian traitor who'd been put in power <laughs> by Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin in the most nefarious place. Makes Alger Hiss look like a hero. I mean, 
And yet the whole thing was completely bogus, completely bogus. And they had no trouble whatsoever bringing the entire establishment around to rally around that point of view to try to marginalize any semblance of normalizing relations with Russia. And they just will not stand for it. And so you're right. I mean, all that's the long answer to tell you. It's as hopeless as you think, because we do have guys who could fit those roles. But Trump doesn't even know their names. And other than Rand Paul, and then even if he did, it's just precluded. There's just too many interests led by the Israelis, but whoever else too in the national security state who would just not stand for it. Guess it's just us then. <laughs> yep. But so, so Scott, but you know, I any- should mention that the, the Quincy <laughs> Institute, um, that's Andrew Basevich and um, Eli Clifton and Trita Parsi, and they're not libertarians, but um, I think Clifton and Parsi are both progressives, but Basevich is a conservative, and they're not pure Ron Paulians or anything, but essentially, if you look at the staff of the Quincy Institute, it's all the guys from Jim Loeb's blog. Jim Loeb is one of the greatest chroniclers of the evils of the neoconservatives. Um, If you Google neoconservatism in a nutshell, you'll see the best speech by Jim Loeb about who these neocons are. And essentially, the Quincy Institute is low blog. So yes, they're mostly like progressive types, but they're great on war. Eli Clifton is second to none at researching the corruption of the Israel lobby in this country. Trita Parsi was for years the leader of the great uh, National Iranian American Council, um, you know, opposing war and preaching peace between us and Iran. And these guys are trying to get a seat at the table. You know, they're trying to get to smuggle a less interventionist voice into the halls of power where, as you said, we don't have a single seat at the table at the Council on Foreign Relations. There's not a single guy with a a prominent anti-war voice in any of the real halls of power. And the Quincy Institute, I don't think they're really selling out. I think they're doing a good job of trying to bring anti-war into Washington, D.C. in a way it hasn't been before. And then Cato's been there all along. And you got to give credit to Ted Carpenter and Doug Bondo and Trevor Thrall and John Glazer and all the people at the foreign policy department at Cato are great. And they deserve a lot of credit. But I don't know how much anybody really listens to them in D.C. But but they're there and they're available. If anybody in the Trump White House is listening to the Punk Rock Libertarians podcast tonight, <laughs> like I got some... Well, we I know have, who could be the deputy secretary of defense for policy. It would be great. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure those guys are all over ID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Probably, you know, why not? Yeah, like Roger Stone actually tweeted us. He said he was listening to us. So that was, oh, that was pretty cool. This was, yeah. this was before he went hey, to jail, though. <laughs> Roger Stone, call me. Man, I, I know a guy who knows a guy. We could get some work done. Nice, man. <laughs> hey, uh, Scott, oh, yeah. once again, dude, thanks for being on here. We're going to head on over to our After Hours program. If, if you're available to join, you're more than welcome to join. We'd love to have you. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug uh, before we end the podcast here? Uh, sure. So um, I've done 5,000 interviews since uh, right around this time, 2003, 17 years ago. Um, almost all anti-war stuff. And all that's at scotthorton.org. And then I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com and the director of the Libertarian Institute. And I wrote the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And you can get the audio book of that, too, if any of your listeners could stand nine hours of this. It's um, <laughs> Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. People seem to like it. Have any of you guys read it? Yep. 
I have it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's tremendous, <laughs> man. Yeah, there you go. So see, the guys like it, and you can read about it at foolsaron.us. Nice. Cool, cool. Nice. So, um, yeah, so... And yeah, I'll hang around have, uh, if, you, if you'll have me. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, we would, we would fucking love sure. it, dude. Oh, that would be amazing. So, um, we're about to head over to our After Hours program. If, if you want to join, hit us up at patreon.com forward slash libertarians. And if you contribute a minimum of $1 per month, you will gain access to our After Hours program. Um, also, um, on Sunday night, we've got Julie Borowski coming on. On Monday night, we're doing a 420 special, okay? And and you could say, Matt Bergman, you celebrate 420 every podcast. What makes this different? <laughs> and to that, I would have no response. But um, we're doing that, and uh, we're actually going to have Demo Freeman on, the co-founder of Copblock. So I'm really excited cool. about that. You know, I think the only thing cooler than having Edema Freedom on your podcast is actually just smoking weed with Edema Freedom, which I've, <laughs> which I've done that before, which is really cool. Um, also, uh, the Punk Rock Libertarians podcast tonight is brought to you in part by the Conversations About Freedom podcast hosted by Moral Bob. We also have t-shirts over at libertariancountry.com. If you type in the code PRL or the code PRL podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount. Until next time, live free. We're done. Break with the blood that is shed. Drenching the flags of the tax bombs and bread. Poisons by a few at the expense of the many. Soldiers and gods in the death machine. You can't justify killing by economic gain. For God, country, and democracy. You can put freedom in death point in a fine land. You support the troops that bring them home. I believe the jokes will do the best for you. And I believe that we. Have the power, have the power I hate the state And I know I'm a slave We can make the break Break the power, break the power Society owes individuals nothing more Than not interference with natural rights What's a virtuous person fully comprehends the non-aggression principle, the violence of the state becomes obsolete!